my name is Mari Gerard, and I'm the Managing Editor for Custom Content at Sideline. Today, I am joined by David Freeman, General Manager for Healthcare Analytics Solutions at Quest Diagnostics, for the first of two podcasts focusing on how site and principal investigator selection can be reframed by utilizing lab data. David, thank you very much for joining me today. Let's dive right in. So the first question that I had for you is, what are the challenges that sponsors face when identifying clinical trial sites and principal investigators? The principal issue is identifying patients for trials that are good fit. And so about 67% of patients fall out of the pre-screen. And by that point, about half of the budget has been spent for patient recruitment, right? That's That's a really daunting statistic. And what that means is there's a lot of churn and work on the clinical operations team and a lot of pressure on them as well, because they're they're meeting patients, they're screening them, they're pre-screened failing, and that means that they have to go see more and more patients. So that's a time wasted. It's disappointment, obviously, to the patients who kind of showed up because they were hoping that they were going to be considered for a trial. And, you know, our point of view is that by partnering with sponsors, we can really help them with some of that challenge by getting the people who show up at a site for for that pre-screening are more fully qualified in advance. Fantastic. And why is it so important to identify the right sites for these clinical trials? So if you think about, if you take a step back and think about the relationships that uh, sponsors have with principal investigators, they're identifying PIs who have their treatment area, TA area expertise, right? So they're going to those clinicians who have expertise, who are interested in clinical trial participation. And the assumption is that they also have a viable patient population for the trial. But, you know, if you think about really clearly identifying which patients are going to be a match, you have to sort of go deeper than the therapeutic area. You have to get into inclusion exclusion criteria, which are really very specific to a clinical trial. And so that's that's the issue that we're really centered on is how do you support that effort of identifying principal investigators who have patients that meet the IE criteria and they do so now, right? So not, you know, because you have an ongoing relationship and they've done good work for you in the past and we're assuming that they have the right patient mix for this particular trial. And then on the other side of the coin, why is it important to identify the best PIs for clinical trials? So first of all, you know, clinical trial success is really it. And any a evolving um, you know, art at this point, right? If you speak to sponsors, they don't have uh, really great information on sponsor on uh, a principal investigator performance. Um, you know, I think probably state of the art today is they participated in a trial that was completed, right? That's pretty much. So if you think about you know, do they have the right patient population? Are they able to bring them in and 
pre-screen them and get them into the trial? Are they able to conduct the different milestones and phases of clinical trial operations in a timely way? That's really kind of critical. And if you think about today, 80% of clinical trials fail to meet their clinical trial deadlines. And, and 30% of phase three studies last longer than planned because of recruitment challenges. So what, what does that mean to the sponsor? Well, first and foremost, it means patent life exposure, right? Because they're all racing to get their therapies onto the market while they have patent protection. So time is a critical piece of this. And then, you know, whatever churn there is, is a brand reflection. So they want to have good relationships with their patient populations because these are future they hope this is the population who's going to be taking this medication in the future, right? And as we all know, it's a very connected world, right? Social media is the glue which binds patients in communities. And so you really want those principal investigators to be the right people, have the right touch with the patients, and to help them keep on track so that they can uh, make their submissions, get onto the market, help as many patients as they can, and do that in in the period where their patent life is still protected. Fantastic. And then how does access to lab data help to identify the best sites and principal investigators and optimize those clinical trials? So uh, just to clarify about how lab data helps for every study there's inclusion and exclusion criteria so the ie criteria includes for inclusion what's the you know age of the patients what conditions do they definitively have medications that they're on and exclusion uh, criteria could be the same right they've never been on this primary therapeutic you know they're uh, they don't have a confounding diagnosis that would make testing that particular therapeutic very difficult. So through the work of trying to do the clinical trial planning, you build a a profile of what the patients are that you think would be ideal, right? So it's a mix, basically, of three categories of information, patient demographics, medical history, and lab data. Right, so those are the three that really help you identify what is that patient population that you want to ideally have. So labs become a really uh, critical, not the whole piece, but a critical component of saying, okay, so we've decided we think this is the right profile, but in the real world, how many of those patients really exist? Right, and so we can get two out of the three, the patient demographics and the labs. And we also have partners where we could also in-license the medication history or the health history. And so we can build that clear picture of, well, yes, this is a patient population that exists in the real world. And then where are there pockets of them? Who are the clinicians, clinician types, 
that service those patients and um, where are our principal investigators in relationship to those patient populations. So lab day is really critical in starting to scenario plan your clinical trial. And sometimes it means, you know, well, listen, we said that the value for X needed to be between this value and that value, and the next lab need between this value and that value, but there aren't enough patients that look exactly like that. So we're gonna loosen one of those boundaries. And when we do, and we can do this in real time, uh, we can see, oh, we've increased the target population by 20%, right? And this gives us more confidence that uh, we're gonna be able to be successful uh, in a clinical trial. And we know where those patients are and which PIs are going to reach them. We've seen decentralized clinical trials gaining momentum during the COVID-19 pandemic, as you've said. How can harnessing insights on site and private investigators impact decisions regarding clinical trial design? Yeah, isn't it fascinating how what we accepted to be true was upended when necessity required it? And so the request, the question that I hear from sponsors now is, okay, we proved to ourselves that we actually can do it better and differently. So that's what we want to shift to. And I think that, you know, the decentralized trial movement has been around for a while, but it's been in part constrained to uh, a few ther therapeutic areas in the past, like uh, DERM, where you know, you basically could do a check-in with a camera, right? And send images of the rash or whatever and see how it's been progressing. So expanding beyond that remote connectivity has been an issue, but I think now we're starting to think about it a little bit differently. And, and that is, you know, that's that hybrid model that I talked about where standard of care, when I say standard of care, I mean non-research things. Like if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna ask someone to come to the hospital to get their weight done, their blood pressure, to get their labs pulled and to do some other biometric screening, well, why do they have to go to a university setting to do that? Can I go do that locally? So that's, a, that's one way of decentralizing trials. Another is, particularly for rare uh, disorders, how do you regionalize principal investigators? So it's not necessarily site-based, right? But it's geography-based that you can pull patients from a broader geography because there aren't a lot of those patients, right? They're rare. And so you want to uh, find a more efficient model that isn't necessarily site-based that can uh, interact with those patients in a way that, frankly, they find more satisfying, right? Because you really need to, you know, protect the diversity of patient participation in trials. That leads really nicely into another question that was actually after that question as well. And that was, does harnessing lab data have the potential to make clinical studies more patient-centric generally? Absolutely. First of all, you know, just to back up a second around Quest assets. Um, so, you know, we see about a third of the U.S. population every year 
We work with half the country's hospitals and clinicians. And so we have a lot of high touch into the healthcare stakeholders. There's been this sort of big divide between research and care. And one of the things that you know we've seen with COVID, and I think it's only going to continue, is a blurring of the lines, right, between research and care. But there's still a gap on making the right connections between care teams and research teams. And so because we work with patients, providers, sponsors, we have the ability to create some of that critical connective tissue. Um, so that's really key. Um, the other thing I was looking at an NIH study, it's it goes back a number of years, but I think the statistics haven't fundamentally changed that much, which is 85% of patients are unaware or unsure that participation in a clinical trial was an option for them. And 75% said if they knew about it, they would be willing to participate. So that means that that connection between care teams and research teams is not as vibrant and specific in the care setting as it needs to be and as, as patients expect it to be. So that's a kind of parcel, partial answer to your question, just sort of some of the things that Quest, I think, can bring to the table that deal with some of the underlying dynamics that aren't necessarily just data specific. And then the second is, you know, with every lab test, there is an ICD-10 code, a disease code, right? There's um, a disease or uh, health journey that we all go through, right? And so uh, labs is kind of the common denominator. 70% of clinical decisions are made using labs. And so, um, you know, tools that we provide like MyQuest where someone can look at their results over time and then they can also start to crack the code on well what's the constellation of my lab results mean rather than trying to piece it together lab by lab by lab and that's an opportunity for patients to understand where they are in that clinical context and it's an opportunity for us to potentially connect the dots between care teams and research teams on behalf of patients who really, you know, expect to be increasingly empowered to be able to make these decisions and to chart their own course. Well, thank you, David, for taking the time to have this conversation today. It's been fantastic to get your insight on this very interesting topic. For our listeners, make sure you tune in to the second podcast, which is now available. Finally, I would like to thank our sponsor, Quest Diagnostics, for making this great discussion possible.